Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by none other than my weekend email. Yes, that's right. Every weekend, I send out a few interesting links, articles, and sources that I've been reading. Last weekend, for example, I shared five links, including a blog post by Greg Mankiw, which answers the same question I asked Lord Skidelsky last week. That is, why did Keynes use the letter Y to denote income? And Pericles' funeral oration. The speech, or more likely a roughly similar version, was given by Athenian statesman and general Pericles at a public funeral for all those who had been killed at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War in 431 BCE. Here's the best bit taken from Richard Crawley's translation of Thucydides. It sums up the Athenian spirit of community and sense of the common good. Quote, We cultivate refinement without extravagance and knowledge without effeminacy. Wealth we employ more for use than for show and place the real disgrace of poverty not in owning to the fact but in declining the struggle against it. Our public men have, besides politics, their private affairs to attend to, and our ordinary citizens, though occupied with the pursuits of industry, are still fair judges of public matters. For, unlike any other nation, regarding him who takes no part in these duties, not as unambitious but as useless, we Athenians are able to judge at all events, even if we cannot originate. And instead of looking on discussion as a stumbling block in the way of action, we think it an indispensable preliminary to any wise action at all. Again, in our enterprises, we present the singular spectacle of daring and deliberation, each carried to its highest point and both united in the same persons, end quote. But I digress. To join my mailing list and get access to my weekend emails, head to thejspod.com now and sign up. That's all. Back to the show. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. It is great to have you back and what a fantastic conversation we have in store. This was my first face-to-face interview of the year, so I was very fortunate that it was with a great bloke and a funny man. My guest is one half of the iconic Australian comedy duo Hamish and Andy, most likely the Andy half. Along with his best mate Hamish, Andy Lee is most known for their successful drive-time radio show, The Hamish and Andy Show, and its various incarnations. The show is the highest-rated radio series in Australian history, with a national audience of more than 2 million listeners. The pair also have successful TV careers, and are increasingly branching out to pursue solo work while maintaining their podcast show, Hamish and Andy, which is probably Australia's most popular podcast. I caught up with Andy in Richmond, Melbourne to chat about life lessons, the rules of radio, the craft of comedy, and the art of a lasting partnership. Ladies and gentlemen, without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the great Andy Lee. Andy Lee, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Joe, it's good to finally be here. Your persistence is fantastic. And uh, it's not that I was ducking and weaving this this uh, this chance to catch up, but um, timing was always the issue. But we found the window. 
I sort of feel like the Kalahari Bushman of podcast hosts, <laughs> just patiently, slowly <laughs> grinding you down. You must yeah. be exhausted. No, I was always <laughs> excited and enthused. Just, um, well, I was going away the first time round, and then and then we had another um, uh, another show coming out. Yeah, yeah. But you did it really well. It's like not a weekly. I was like checking in, kind of. Biannually, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was very calculated. So yep. we first the first and last time we met, as we were discussing yep. before, was at the Posty in Richmond yep. with our mutual friend Asim yep. in late 2017. Yeah. And then I think every six months since then, I've invited you onto the podcast. Yes, I like it. <laughs> it's it, it's like Hamish and I have a standing invite for Tom Cruise on our um on our podcast. He doesn't know there's a standing invite. <laughs> <laughs> but we just like to mention it every time that, of course, standing invite to uh, Tom Cruise to come on. If he ever does come on, I'm not sure what we'd say, actually, because we don't really have guests anymore, but <laughs> we'd have to accept him. Tom, if you're listening. Yes, yeah. I'm sure he would. Yeah. <laughs> so I got you a gift, not, not the bottle opener, oh. another gift. Wow. But you can't have it because it's not here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Can I have it eventually or just can't have it? Period? Eventually, I, th- I think. Okay, let's see how I perform. Have you read Born Standing Up, Steve Martin's autobiography? No. Okay, so I bought you Born Standing Up. Oh. It's one of the best books I read last year. Yep. Top two or three. Gorgeous book. I love Steve Martin, so yeah, that'll be right on my alley. Really good. So it's quite short, and I don't normally find myself laughing out loud at a book. Yep. And it was genuinely funny, but the two key like themes were Be So Good They Can't Ignore You, and the importance of belonging to like a scene yep. and the creativity that sort of bubbles up from that. Interesting. Really cool book. Yep. I thought you'd like it, but what's interesting about that book is the first two sentences. So it opens with, I spent 18 years as a stand-up comedian. Yep. The first 10 years were spent learning. The next four years were spent refining. And then the final four years were spent in wild success. <laughs> wow. And I feel like for you and Hamish, it's almost precisely backwards like 2001 <laughs> to 2005 a sort of learning yeah. and refining yeah then 2006 onwards great success. success is that your sense as well um we i mean i don't think you stop learning and refining um particularly for anything created because creative because tastes change yeah and you kind of want to a, we want to evolve our own game a little bit because it's fun to, but also you, you cannot be doing the same stuff as you were doing 10 years ago um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, the, the, you know, the, 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 the most obvious one at the moment is times have changed for what you can and can't say. So you can see a lot of people getting cancelled now from 10, 20 years ago. Hamish and I never really were in that realm, but um, that's the obvious one. Moods change, words change, so you have to kind of update your game and uh, and then taste change. At the moment, just how people consume uh, media or anything you're making is the big one. Um, we have to think about that a little bit. So what's an example of how that's changed? Well, just having Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, when we started, we didn't have to worry about any social media. Yeah. And now it's such a big part of everyone's platform. Uh, and so, you know, I was probably a reluctant joiner of that stuff. Like I wasn't particularly good. I'm very late to Instagram, my personal, um, profiles, but we weren't focusing 
on that we're focusing on doing the best radio show or TV show we could but it turns out that those other channels is probably the way a lot of people will see or find you so it's important to keep those channels you know just as pumping yeah so I'd like to cover that early period and yeah. then and then the later period yeah but I want to add something onto the beginning which is sort of your your background and upbringing mm-hmm. where were you born born in Melbourne um, my mum and dad were from the country, both primary school teachers. They had my older brother in Wangaratta, which is kind of central Victoria, yep. and then travelled down to have me. I don't know why they already had the instinct that I couldn't hack it in the, <laughs> in the, on a farm or, or couldn't hack a rural life, but they were probably pretty accurate. Um, and so, yeah, I was born um, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which is look, it's very expensive to live there now, but at the time... Um, my dad bought the house for fifty-one thousand dollars, I think, and he, he's my mum's dad. My grandpa went through and was, he was so angry with him for the purchase, <laughs> and you'll never be able to pay it off. And what are you doing? How could anyone pay this much for a house? But it was a thirty-year loan at seventeen and a half percent. I think was the interest rates back then. Yeah, so that um, would have been the the eighties. Yep, eighty-one, maybe nineteen eighty. Um, but it turns out. For a fellow like my dad who's not really interested in finances at all, he's extremely like cautious in that, but it turns out to be easily the best investment he's ever made. Um, that's why I keep telling him to sell it, to so he can actually realise. He's like, no, no, I'm very happy. Where are they still in the family home? But um, yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it, was great. it was a great spot to grow up. Um, very much suburban life and, and the schools that I went to were just within walking distance. We we like a jock, a nerd, something else. On a, on, a, on a Venn diagram, I was probably in the middle of both of those circles, and they did disc- they connected. Um, I uh, was captain of music as well as being captain of sport for the school, which never happened. Well, hadn't happened. So yeah, if I should have been at one end, you know probably bullying the other but <laughs> but I, I'm hugely into my music and uh and uh, so you know played in all the orchestras bands etc um and then yeah hugely into my sport as well so it was it was a good good chance to be across both back at school can you tell me about the experience of learning your mum had cerebral vasculitis yeah that's a a strange thing to happen and I'm sure for so many people listening um have close ones uh, that, you know, have contracted disease that... But this one was particularly confusing because no one knew what it was, not even doctors knew what it was for a very, very long time. Um, But, yeah, mum forgot how to kind of talk, walk, um, who we all were for a matter... for a long time, you know, at least three to six months. I can't really remember now, but... um, So... It just happened really gradually. Apparently they, uh, well, gradually over like five days. She started, uh, my mum's pretty proper. Um, I've never heard her swear. You know, it was all about manners when we were growing up. And um, I was watching uh, the Australian Open tennis. We are back up in the country and I would have been 15. And my mum walked past a tennis player called Mary Pierce uh, playing, a French woman who was quite buxom. And my mum said, that lady's got big boobs. And I turned around and looked at my mum and went, that's a really odd thing to say. And then she said, and you're not allowed to touch them and walked off. I was like, uh, okay, 
no. <laughs> Hadn't planned it. Wasn't sure if I'd be allowed to anyway. <laughs> but she started saying strange things. Um, and then uh, she was in a, a lot of pain at night. And then she couldn't walk all of a sudden. And so that was when dad was like, my dad's like the last person to take anyone to hospital. <laughs> yeah. If you have any injury, it's kind of like rub it better. It's like, it's yeah. pretty much what, so um, probably he'd gone through those steps with mum. And then uh, we were in a car heading back to Melbourne to kind of find out what was going on. And, and it went pretty, pretty downhill pretty quickly from there. Um, so I don't, yeah, mum went into hospital. She was, um, uh, we can actually see it from this building up at the Epworth there. Um, and, uh, and then went into St. Vincent's, uh, and was there for a long time as they tried to work out what was going on, took a biopsy of her brain, which is pretty intrusive. They kind of cut out the part of your skull and take the biopsy, but they thought it was MS for a while, started treating her for that and it nearly killed her. Um, the doctors kind of think, told us about two weeks to live, uh, which again, I'm not sure if I ever believed because I don't remember that ever being a shock. Mm. Um, although you kind of compartmentalise some of these things. But yeah, I don't remember it ever being really a shock. I was kind of like, oh, well, there's been a pretty drastic downward spiral. That probably seemed to be the conclusion, but we just kind of want to work out what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, from, from there, she levelled. Still didn't know who we were. So kind of go in every day like Groundhog Day and say, hi, my name's Andy, I play the trumpet <laughs> um, with my dad. Uh, and she, yeah, they one day just, just kind of snapped out of it. Wow. Yeah. She was a bit weird. Well, it's actually very weird. But she was the first, I, I think I'm right in saying she's the first to survive it in Melbourne, but it's extremely rare disease. And, um, and if, so if anyone's listening to this, Please reach out if you haven't. I did another podcast years ago, oh, years and years ago. Or even might have been on a radio show, and um, and there was a twenty-year-old uh, girl in Frankston that had um, that had it, which is so sad to have it so young. And uh, gone through a similar thing, and um, reached out, and because it's so rare, it was easy. It was nice for someone to to actually chat to to someone else about it that, that mm-hmm. has gone through it and, and the family situation. Did your mum keep her memories from before it happened or did she need to relearn everything? No, she did. And she's like a savant with stuff, which is really strange. Like I'll say, hey, we went on that camping trip like where it rained. I can't remember where it was. She goes, oh, it'd be Cape Connor and it was August 1987. You know, yeah, we drove up there on a Sunday. She knows all that stuff. But then like basic maths and those type of things she struggles with. So like real-time um, cognitive stuff she still struggles with. I think she just gives up because she thinks she can't do it. But she did have to learn a lot of that stuff. Again, she had to learn speech again and then occupational therapy just to try and you know get through everyday life. Um, but she's in great shape now. That's great. It's obviously impossible to run the experiment of your life again. Mm. But do you think that experience had an impact on your personality? Oh, in any yeah. Way? But both positively and negatively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sh- the, the, the positives, uh, I would say our family is so close because of it. Um, we hang out every week. Um, we talk every day. Um, and 
not just to mum, but like the the whole group, my siblings and my brother, sister, and my dad and I. So that is just I don't think would have happened unless we'd been brought together for that reason and a central person to care for. And I've talked about that with mum before. I said, hey, if there's a silver lining, and I know you have to had to go through all this, and you're in, you know, you have have a, a pusher, and you and you have to sleep kind of sixteen hours a day at the moment, but. The silver lining, we're all really happy <laughs> and we all get along really, really well. Um, and she, she's kind of proud of that, which is good. But the, the negative at the time, and I've tried to kind of improve in this department, was I kind of didn't really consider anyone's problems real. Like uh, when, you've kind of, when your mum's sick and doesn't remember you or she's been told two weeks to live, when... A friend of mine saying, I'm worried this girl doesn't like me. I was kind of very dismissive of people's issues. Um, not in a way where I'd say, hey, mate, get, get the hell over it. More just like not listening, not taking it in, not really trying to fix it, just judging people's problems on a scale that I've invented. Um, and that's something that I had to improve on and have just because, you know, the smallest things can emotionally mean a lot to someone um uh even more so because we all deal with emotions differently uh and can be just as important um for someone's mindfulness uh then then something that's drastic is someone you know terminally ill so you've got to really take the time and i've i've, I've improved that way take the time to to listen and actually take in and then help rather than kind of judge and dismiss when you finished high school, what were your aspirations? I wanted to be a musician main, mainly. Yeah, I still, um, still love playing music. Uh, wasn't so, like, was performing, but didn't necessarily see myself going down that path. Uh, was funny enough, but never really thought I'll be a comedian or anything. Um, and then, you know, I was off my, on my way to Melbourne Uni and actually wanted to be an accountant was the... Was the <laughs> first thing that I thought I'd do because I was pretty good with numbers um, and I kind of like things being in order and accounted for. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was kind of a mixed bag but mainly playing music. I was playing gigs four, four or five nights a week with my brother um, and we were writing a lot and that was, that's kind of still where I get giddy and fanboy. In fact, last night was Michael Gadinsky's memorial um, at Rod Laver Arena and um, I went to the Corner uh, Hotel which is around the corner from here uh, which is a great band venue the Rolling Stones played there back in the day but I've seen so Hosier there and Amy Shark more recently and you know back in the day Living End and Xavier Rudd Jack Johnson they're like there's just it, it was the the great venue for bands that are on their way up or on their way down and you get this like little kind of 700 person room where you can actually get up close and personal to them. Yeah. So I went back there because Michael uh, Gadinsky and Molly Meldrum used to kind of run the night back there and check out bands. And um, it turns out most people at Rod Lave Arena had the same idea. <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of artists last night and um, I went up and fanboyed over uh, Paul Dempsey, who you're probably too young to remember Paul Dempsey, but Something for Kate was the name of his band. And, uh, and he was in the band with his wife and I went and just went up and said, just, you know, I still love the band, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he's like, all right, Andy, thanks very much. <laughs> so I walked back to my girlfriend and she goes, how'd that go? I was like, 
not pretty, not very good. I don't. Think. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I still like getting excited over tunes. Is was it Zoophyte? You're in your brother's band. Yeah. Is that how I pronounce it? Yeah. Or I think it's not even the way you're meant to pronounce the word, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Which was fun because we played a gig. We, we decided to stop playing covers. We're playing some covers. We play some originally. We said, let's just, just play our own music. And we went and played a gig uh, in Brunswick. And we didn't have a band name. And um, on, on the chalkboard at the front, they were like, tonight playing Zoophite. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Who, I wonder who's playing with us. We get in there and... Um, we're like, oh, who else is playing? They go, just you guys. I said, well, what's that on the chalkboard at the front? And the guy goes, oh, the chef said, to, like, was, he always puts the name out at the front. And, um, and you guys didn't have one, so he just made one up. I'm like, well, that's good enough for us. <laughs> that's how it started. But yeah, it was really fun. We never had a song that was, like, good enough to have that huge or, or sustained success on the radio, but we were a fun band to watch live. So we ended up playing a lot of festivals and with a lot of, you know, fun people like Cat Empire and um, uh, Pete Murray. Um, wow. End of Fashion. We, End of Fashion was a big band we played with at the New Year's Eve one year. Um, they More recently, our band uh, toured, supported In Excess on their last uh, East Coast tour. Um, so, yeah, there's been some... Cool, cool bands to play with. Yeah. How did you meet Hamish Blake? At university, which was strange because neither of us went very often. Um, <laughs> year two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand one. Yeah, Hamish went to New South Wales for a year, um, kind of a gap year. But I think his mum was working up there, and so he went up there and then kind of studied for a year and then came back down to Melbourne. It was a um, uh, one of his mates that went to his high school came up to me and said, hey, I, that was quite funny and a tutor, after a tutorial and said, that was quite funny. You should meet my mate Hamish. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird, but yeah. And then I said, oh, where is he? He said, oh, he doesn't get here till next year. And I thought, well, that's even weirder that, you, <laughs> that you've just come out and said that. And um, sure enough, like in March next year, this guy Pete came and said, hey, this is the guy I was telling you about and kind of match made us, like as far as, a good eye for, um, I mean, radio station uh, managers would die for Pete's eye to be able to match two people and put them together and it work. Um, they, they, they've so many program directors across the country have tried that. Normally, an ex Big Brother star and something, someone to put on a radio show. So, what, what did you do in the tutorial that Pete liked so much? I was, it was the only tutorial I'd gone to for the whole. <laughs> semester but I it was for quantitative methods and I knew I needed you got one percent per tutorial you went to um and I realized I needed every percent I could get because I wasn't going to pass this thing and um yeah I uh I went in and they the guy was doing the role and kind of glided by my name again and I was no no no, I'm here I'm here and can I can I quickly address the class and the Guy's like, um, yeah, okay. He was a pretty cool uh, tutor. I got up in front of the class and just explained that I didn't come for the good of their learning. I'm a very distracting person to be around. And it was uh, like pretty much a selfless act to not come for the entire year. And I think you should consider giving me the full 10%. 
and everyone kind of laughed and and then the tutor gave me 10 percent, and i got 51 for the subject <laughs> well played yeah yeah so it was good Haim and i in the second year and third year of my uni often have classes next door to each other and there was one which was i was in consumer behavior which is like a marketing kind of advertising type subject and Haim was in um computer science in the next door and we'd walk in, cut it together, and I good luck with your gig. And he has good luck with your, yours. And we'd try and make everyone laugh in the tute. But people were really trying to concentrate in computer science, and people were really open to shenanigans in mine. And every time we walked out, he'd always go, I heard what was going on in your class. Great gig. And I was like, didn't he have any laughs coming from yours? <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty fun. You guys were kind of part of an, an ecosystem even at that stage, there were, you know, Ryan Shelton. Yep. Whipper might have entered the picture. At yeah, some so point. I went to high school with Whipper, who's at now Fitzy and Whipper and Nova Breakfast in yeah. uh, Sydney on the radio. Yeah, so Ryan was best mates with Haim at school. Yeah. Um, and uh, Whipper was a couple of years older than me, but I'd see out mainly at gigs actually playing music. And he wanted to play music as well, so sometimes I'd get him to uh, support. Uh, my shows on, on, on guitar Although he was Not particularly good Not saying I was good But yeah There was But he, he always would bring A big crowd He had a lot of friends so I was like oh, This is kind of good <laughs> um, And so Yeah when we're all talking about I say to him We should get on the radio And kind of knew the way in From uh, What someone had told me At the pub I was working at And Haim said Oh well my friend Ryan I always said that I'd kind of do some stuff with him. And I was like, yeah, hey, let's bring him along. And, and, and same with Whipper. I, I said, oh, my mate Whipper's kind of keen to jump on. And, and so he kind of jumped on. So, yeah, we're just kind of working it out and jumping on CINFM, which is a student youth network out of RMIT. Mm-hmm. Mm. So two things that I'm curious about. One is how did you get the idea that you should be doing radio? Mainly... When Hamish and I met and we were making each other laugh a lot and then everyone around us laugh a lot, um, it f- we just started writing down things. I, I showed Haim like some of the co- uh, comedy stuff that I'm really into. It was on VHS tapes, which is hilarious. Um, and we kind of bonded over working out what we thought was funny and, and, and styles, etc. And... Um, so yeah, it was a, uh, it was it was kind of like all that stuff was happening when we realised, hey, this is there's something here. Mm. We should actually film something or yeah or do it. And so I was working at the Village Bell Hotel in St Kilda, which is now like most of uh, the pubs in Melbourne turned into a beautiful gastro pub, <laughs> but um, at the time was pretty rough. Um, I was behind the bar with um, a guy called Angus Sampson who's a fantastic actor, who's in um, season two of Fargo. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got an amazing voice. And we used to talk about different performing and different things you want to do. Um, and uh, it was just, there was regulars that came in and sat and drank. And, and one of them was just, hey, if I heard, overheard that you were interested in radio, you should go up and check out CNFM student youth network and then and, and then um and similarly you know i can get you a link into channel 31 so that was kind of where i was like okay well i should go check it out so went in had a chat to them and they said hand in your demo and and that's kind of how it went and why wasn't it like 
Why didn't it become Hamish and Ryan or Andy and Whipper? Like, what yeah. about you and Hame sort of clicked? The, I think that was tough for us all kind of to reconcile. I was like, well, Hame and I just clicked and had a, had a chemistry. And that's, you know, that is the weird thing about chemistry. It's like, you don't really know. If you could, if you did know, that it'd be very easy to put different duos together um, or performing partners together. But, you know, Hame and I just had this instant friendship and, uh, and obviously we still work with Ryan and Whipper. But for our sensibilities, uh, I think we just gelled. The, willing, the kind of joint willingness for risk-taking and shenanigans, Haim and I are pretty level-pegging on that. And I often think about that to go, we're kind of just willing to, to try anything and, uh, you know, if, it was, if it was up for a laugh. Um, and that's why a lot of the hidden camera stuff was came kind of easy to us because we weren't too worried about embarrassing ourselves. So maybe the fact that we were kind of both happy to play in that realm was meant it kind of was the natural fit. What was the moment when you realised that a laugh for either of you was a laugh for the team? And what, what did it take to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a thing where, you know, when you're kind of working out your own voice... You kind of like, you know, the funny one is, is a fun thing to be and we're both funny. But like I kind of realised pretty the end of year one on the radio that the importance really was if either of us got a laugh and continued it. And Haim probably realised the same thing. It's just like that was going to be better for our show. And it's kind of freeing. Mm. I listened to a lot of definitely comedians get put together on the radio and they do just kind of not listen to each other. They're sort of competing. They compete uh, and just ta- try and tag each other's jokes the whole time. And it just kind of turns into this snowball of, you know, the, the, the one theme with as many jokes on top of as possible, which kind of comes exhausting for my years anyway. So it was kind of freeing to kind of sit back and, and know that. Um, and it's not necessarily this straight man and funny man, mm. but you do have to assume some kind of roles from time to time, I think. And we kind of, we kind of naturally f- fill into those slots as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very like mature realisation. It's all, well, it is, but it's also like, it's became heaps more fun. Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I don't want to do that, you know. Um, it was just, it made, it made everything heaps more fun because we're just, it's just for the good of the show and the sh- if the show's flying. Yeah. Um, uh, that was that was just going to make it better. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was a pretty pretty easy thing. So I want to talk about the rules of radio and then the craft of comedy. Mm. We've got the alliteration for both of them. Yes. So, <laughs> rules of radio. What was the process of learning the idiosyncrasies of that medium, mm. and what are some of the conventions of radio that are obvious when you're in the driver's seat, but might not be obvious to yeah. listeners? So I guess. Um, some examples like for a while I think at the beginning you couldn't be too specific about places in Melbourne because it had to be accessible to audiences in other cities so you could say we went out to a bar last night but you couldn't say we went to the corner yeah it was there was a lot of rules that you get told to do when you start and um, and I was really keen to learn them all as quick as possible 
so we made our um our program directors listen back with they called air checks but listen back to every single break of every single show with us um after we did it so and we'd sit then i'd sit there with a pad and pen name probably um didn't (laughs) (laughs) um and just write down just every single thing that was getting told we were doing incorrectly or had to work on what's an example well really tiny stuff like come back with the show name um when someone uh when uh someone rings up um don't say how you going it's going to slow it down you know slick slicker ways to get straight into people's stories how to get the credit away uh for for a brand but have it feel pretty smooth and get that business done um how to forward tease at the end of a break when you've got something great coming up making sure to hook people through ad breaks and stuff like that. So it's just, it's business. Like it's not, there's not really much to it. Um, But I would sit down and look at those, that notes before the next show and just go, I'm not going to make any of those mistakes again. Or or pick one and go, today's, I'm just going to work on that. Yeah. Um, Because I was bringing us in and out of the ad breaks and et cetera and, and the song. So, that became muscle memory really quickly. Like anyone that's working on anything, tennis swing or golf swing and stuff, you, you practice those and that becomes then set and you could go on to the next bit. Mm. And it was kind of after we got that down, it was then we were like, do we agree with the rules? Like I'm going to respect the rules um, and, but, and, and learn them. And then we kind of started going, ah, we don't really need to do that or this or that and started creating our own sound but i think you had to, had to under, kind of understand the game to dismantle the game yeah for sure gus and i found that when we started the podcast so i started it with a uni mate yep. uh, gus who stepped back in 2019 when he moved to new york yep. um but i was probably always slightly more passionate even though he kind of like bullied me into doing it in yeah. the first instance and also stitched me up with the name the jolly swagman <laughs> um <laughs> But how um, did, how did the name when the name come about? Oh, like, I think it was always going to be like an interview show. Yep. And originally, it was the Jolly Swag hyphen Men plural. Ah, uh, yes. And he was like, "We're the Jolly yep. Swag Men." Like, <laughs> yeah, we're Jolly. Yeah. We've got swag, and yep. I was like, "Oh God, it's." I don't love it, but, yeah, but I yeah. hate picking names, so yep. we'll, we'll go with it. And uh, it's just. It's just too late now. <laughs> but I do, I, I get a kick out of the juxtaposition between just the stupid, meaningless title yep. and then the content is fairly serious. It's always <laughs> funny when you have like an American guest on and they're just thinking, what the, what the fuck <laughs> is this shit? And then you, you start having a conversation. They're like, mm. okay, it's good questions and good research. But um, in the early days when we were, uh, I had, we had a lot of fun doing it with each other and we would, make ourselves laugh sometimes at the expense of our guest which is probably a bit disrespectful in hindsight (laughs) but it was always in good humor yep and we um but we would also really hold each other to account in terms of improving yep and one of the things we would always do would be like oh you've got to ask open questions yeah so we'd we'd listen back and point out when like the other had had asked a closed question. Yep, like, so instead of saying like, um, you know, was that experience good for you? Yeah. 
I'd say, I'd, I should ask, you know, how was that experience yeah. for you? So you can go off in any direction. Yeah. And that was an example of a convention that once we'd learned, like once we'd learned that rule, yep. eventually we were able to innovate. Yeah. And, and I, I eventually realized like, well, not every question has to be an open question. Because no. sometimes you just want to quickly establish a premise. Yeah. To bring the audience along. Yep. Get a, a yes or no answer from the guest yeah. and then you can move on to the yes. more interesting open question stuff. So it reminds me of the, there's like this, this adage, um, boys know the rules, old men know the exceptions. Yeah. I think, but you have to learn the rules first. That's a great, well, that's a better way of saying what I said before. <laughs> what did I say? The, uh, you have to understand the game before you can dismantle it. Still no, that's good thing. too. <laughs> <laughs> So you'd learn the rules of radio and, and I imagine, like, was that something you could pick up fairly quickly? That, yeah. That was probably the easy part, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it came easy to me. It doesn't come easy to, to many people, to, mm-hmm. like to everybody. Like, but if you're kind of got a systematic brain, um, yeah. I mean, some of the anchors out there are incredible. Like, they're so, it's so simple for them to do that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I found that came relatively easy to me and then we could kind of play around with it so moving to the craft of comedy let me summarize what i think is your and Haim's sense of humor and then mm-hmm. you can tell yeah. me if i'm wrong so i think what you guys do so well is you create a new game or a new world with its own arbitrary set of rules mm-hmm. And then you steadfastly follow those rules, sometimes <laughs> at great personal cost. Yeah. <laughs> is that a good distillation it, it of the sense pretty of humor? Much, yeah. I mean, I've never <laughs> analyzed what we do. Um, I bumped into someone in the street who asked for a photo once and they said, oh, look, we're studying you. You know, what do you mean? It's like, oh, and they, they pulled out, there was at Swinburne, and they pulled out these notes and the, the Hamish and Andy show was the study of what they would wow. and I And I was reading it going, no, nah, we haven't thought... They, 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 these guys do this and this and this is why they do this and so like just so you know we're not thinking any of it. yeah <laughs> yeah so when people kind of reverse analyze what we're doing um i think you're right we, we prefer to find playground rather than the actual joke itself just for us um and so if we find places to play it can go anywhere which is exciting for us um and also it's there's a lot more like jokes to be had there's a lot more fun to be had so we used to talk about the show being more fun than funny um and people kind of like watching people have fun or listening to people have fun uh but yeah we we absolutely you're right we we like inventing the world and then you know abiding by the rules of that world um uh which is it's it's a fun and then our listeners come in and do the same they they okay, yep, we can we can agree to play in this world, and they stick to it as well. So it makes it fun when lots and lots of people are, are always playing the same game almost. But you've got to be, I suppose that's where we you put a little bit of thought and time into. It. It's like it has to be foolproof. The world has to stand up. It has to be a construct construct that you're like, yeah, it makes sense to follow these rules. Not it's it's often nonsense. But it still has some kind of grounding in... in, re, in it's plausible. Yeah, plausible or just... It just makes sense. Because like, if you're just being silly for no reason, I think it's hard for people to grab on, to hold on to it. Yeah. 
where that's why we do uh, take a lot of things, like, you know, say if it's launching the fragrance, like, you ta- like it's ridiculous that Hamish has started or signed a contract without asking me, but also <laughs> for, for a, a fragrance called Andy by Hamish. <laughs> but then to play in the world, okay, well, let's just establish that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a face of a fragrance. The funniness is it's the first ever reluctant ambassador for a product, <laughs> but you still play with all the rules that you would for that, the, the marketing campaign, all yeah. these things, and it's just – but essentially the only rule we have is, yep, you've hired a guy that doesn't want to do it, but I have to. That, and as soon as you, you establish that, it kind of makes sense. That could happen, and then off you go, and you kind of dial all those things up to 11. Yeah, yeah. On on that with um, Andy by Hamish, were there any like legal questions raised as to whether he could do this joke in the first instance? He said to me he he was super nervous because <laughs> he because he told me live on air as well, and it and it must admit it took me time to kind of unpack. Like, I'm sure we'll go back and listen to that break at one point when it comes up, maybe on our Remembering Project yeah. podcast, but the. I remember not loving it to begin with, like not loving the idea um, because I didn't get it yet, you know. I, I actually felt like at the time, where am, I, where am I meant to play here, you know, um, because I just don't want to have, you know, three months of just uh, basically everyone piling on me for having a fragrance. So, but that, that kind of... You know, it was almost within like 10 minutes. I was like, ah, oh, I can't get it now. Yeah. But my brain did take a while to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> I was rewatching the bourbon style commercial yeah. that Hayman Jack did the other day. So good. So amazing. Yeah. Your, da- your daddy didn't do shit, boy. <laughs> so you said that you and Haim like to aim for fun, not funny. And then almost serendipitously, the funny kind of Come emerges on. out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool. That it's like a very indirect way to create the humour. And it also kind of takes pressure off the humour in a lot of respects. Yeah. Um, because if the idea is naturally just fun, like you've got a momentum, you've got this, yeah, this drive and energy to it, which is really fun. What do you think it would look like if you guys aimed for funny instead? And why wouldn't it work as well? Um, well, I mean, funny is, is often punchline humor, which is awesome. And, you know, the best standups in the world nail it. It's not my particular skill set, um, punchline humor. Um, Haim's pretty good at it, but like, again, it's not, it's not his natural place to want to play either. Uh, we don't love, we did some standup at the beginning, but we don't love saying the same thing twice. Um, and that is what stand-up is. It is mm. repetitive, refining the essence of the exact way you say a joke, that exact sentence with the inflection at the right time to make it funnier than it was, all that stuff, which we probably just didn't have the patience for, to be honest. So um, so it, it, it's not like we, we were going, which one should we choose? Like, well, this just comes naturally to us and we want our jobs to be fun and to enjoy it Mm. and this seemed like the fastest track to doing that so how do you thread that needle between having spontaneity and surprising each other Mm. 
and then not being like a totally unscripted train wreck on radio? Um, I mean, hopefully we got it right on the most part. <laughs> a think lot you of did. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the you've got to do the discipline to create. So we didn't tell each other anything we we're going to say on the radio um, ever. Really, in fact, half the meeting was a planning meeting for the show with producers was I'd be outside the room playing on my phone and then we'd swap and I'd look and I'd go, oh, hey, how are doing this break, this break, that break and I'm going to do this break, this break, that break. We'd leave breaks, Frank. We'd, we'd, we'd talk about what phone topics, particularly if they were topical, we might want to do like uh, as a, together and there might be sketches or a prank that we're kind of not nutting out together but on the most part didn't tell each other anything in the same way we do the podcast. And I think it only works if you've got the discipline to kind of at least check yourself for what you're about to bring up and the, the, the playground you're hoping to, to create. Uh, so it's, it's not, that, that's what safeguards it against being you know, a train wreck, I think, is because you just go, all right, I think Haim's going to love this. Um, if he goes down this direction, maybe I'll do that. If he goes down this direction, maybe got this to fall back on and in my head. Generally, he takes it in a completely different direction I didn't even foresee, which is still fun and funny and off you go. But just a couple of safeguards. Uh, and also, how am I best going to explain or, or start this idea? Because Haim's learning it for the first time, I'm learning it for the first time. And if you don't get that right, you spend the first three minutes of the break with the other guy going just kind of looking at you going, what the, where, where are we going with this kind of thing? But if you can get it right from the get-go and you see the other person lean in, you're like, okay, cool, we're away. So that's the little, I suppose, the discipline part of, uh, of, of doing what is fa a fairly loose approach. <laughs> you guys are really good at reviewing and then feeding back insights into your comedy. Yep. And I read... Um, might have been an interview that Sam Kavanagh had yep. done, your executive producer, and he was saying how you guys do post-mortems. And, and one example was after the Greyhound meet in uh, Perth with Fred Bassett. Um, I think you and Sam sat down and, and talked about what worked and what didn't. When you're doing a post-mortem after a, a joke or an adventure, what does that post-mortem actually look like? Is it like yep. a one-hour meeting with the team in a whiteboard do you send an individual way to do like a one pager in Google Docs that they share with nah, everyone? No, nah, never, never, to be honest, never really written down. Okay. Um, I was, I'm, I had to improve in this area and Sam would pull me aside because as soon as we did something, even if it went awesome, as soon as the break finished in the song, I'd walk out and go, you know what would have made it better? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> and one time he just pulled me aside and said, can you fucking let the team celebrate? <laughs> so um, I get pretty analytical pretty quickly with regards to how things... I want everything to be, uh, well, as perfect as yeah. the chaos can be. Um, so we thought review was important, not just for bad things, but for good things. Uh, and generally... Uh, <coughs> You don't want to bog down the next day. If something didn't work, um, we kind of learned not to bring it up at the start of the next day 
because you're in the meeting and go, hey, we need to just quickly review that lot, the thing yesterday. We put a lot of eggs in one basket. You suddenly are on this poor energy leading into what's meant to be an ex- the best part of the day. So we would generally try and do it straight after the show to just go, hey, let's take five minutes. And it wouldn't be that much longer, but just to go, hey, that break didn't work. Why? How could we have safeguarded to it? You know, and, and you just take a few learnings away from it. Um, you know, generally it was like, think about it a little bit more. <laughs> you know, that's, but other times you can, you can go, I have no idea why that didn't work. Like, I still love it. We all still agree that it was great. Glad we shot for it. Um, let's not be scared of those type of ideas because I think there's something there. Uh, just so everybody in the team is kind of reconciled something that didn't quite go well on air. And when we say well, I mean, we're, t- we're talking about singular breaks or things where you're like, eh, that fell a bit flat. But rather than going, who cares? It was better to just have that little bit of extra thought to go, okay, well, let's not do it again. But um, with, a, with a pinch of who cares. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after all of the reviews over the years, have you developed like a theory of what works in terms of comedy and entertainment more broadly? Do you have like a grand theory? Nah, not really. From, because the other thing is comedy is so subjective. So I know what I like. And I think what turns out just evidently what I like is relatively broad because the stuff that we've done has had broad appeal. But, you know, there's some absurd stuff going around which I get a laugh out of and I have no idea why. Um, and so it's kind of hard to go, this is what, how comedy works and so on. But I do know for my tastes... The one thing that I, I appeal to and I think appeals to people is just if the, if the joke or, or the area they're playing in is grounded in some kind of reality, I think, you know, I suppose that's where it comes to relatable humour. But if, if, there is, if there's a something for a people to hold on to and, and relate to or at least reference, I think it's easier um, to make it a, a broader, funnier bit. Yeah. So down the, the opposite end of the spectrum, how do you go watching comedians like Tim and Eric? Do you like their stuff? Yeah, I do. I don't love it as much as Haim does, you know, <laughs> uh, and Ryan absolutely loves it because he's... Absurdist. Uh, yeah, sort of. absurdist stuff. But, you know, like Arnie Donner's kind of yeah. in a similar realm, but I love Arnie Donner, but I feel, and I feel the reason why I love it is they do have observations Mm. they take it to the extreme but it's still grounded again like i was just saying before in something that i can understand and hold on to yeah um so but we you know with our group with with ryan stuff um who's really really fantastic what he does i found at times i'd be going am i helping you with this rye or am i hindering because i'm i'm trying to drag it back to potentially a bit broader but maybe it just needs to sit right in that niche spot um and so we'd have those discussions a bit because you the last thing you want is someone you can you can have like the the best comedian in the world but if he doesn't understand the style you're going for it's not gonna he's not gonna help if he tries to drag in his direction um and i'm far from the best comedian in the world so i was but there was times where i'd say to ryan hey 
have you thought about this, this, and this? And he's like, ah, oh, that's not really what I'm going for. And I was like, I'll step out. I'm not going to push this, but just want to, you know, give the consideration, give you the consideration for it and give yeah. you the time. Yeah. yeah. 2001 to 2005, that period of kind of finding your feet, mm. if it's fair to describe it mm. that way. Um, what was the lowest low of that period? There wasn't really many. Just or, or, or any. <laughs> Sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> yeah, like, again, I was really lucky, got to do it with my best mate. We failed, but found it funny that we failed. We're kind of 20 years old to 24 years old. So there's no dependence. There's no, there's very little risk. Mm. We never really thought it was going to be a career anyway. So it was a great kind of climate to try out and do things. Like we were far more, through naivety, we were far more willing to try and do silly stuff and because it didn't, it didn't matter. Like nothing really mattered. Um, of course, we, wanted, we were proud of the shows and we wanted to learn so on, but we would be, I'd be far more concerned about going for things that we went for back then now because... Is it going to work? People expect a lot of us, all that kind of stuff. It's, I suppose it's the same as anyone when they get older. You know, you do narrow in a little bit. So at times I've got to think back to that time and go, just go with your gut, see, what's fun, see what you think, enjoy that adventure, lean into it and, and it's okay to miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't really... I mean, the first TV show. Yeah, I mean, that was... But again, like we got axed, like it was six episodes, got axed. But Hayman and I were kind of almost relieved it got axed. It wasn't really our show. We learned a bit, but it was like Wayne's World. We'd gone from being on six, sorry, five half-hour episodes on Channel 31 and then suddenly given a primetime show on Channel 7. They put us in suits to make us look older. It had the biggest, glossiest, shiny floor you could ever imagine. Suddenly it had a theme song um, and weird graphics that come up with Hamish and Andy, 300 people, audience, and you're just going wow, okay, this, is this TV? But it didn't feel right for either of us. Writer's room of about 12 that were trying to write jokes for us that weren't really our style, all that stuff. So awesome experience. Um, we had the rest of the cast that didn't really like us because um, not per, for personal reasons, but just because they had signed up to a very different show and they decided to change it to call it the Hamish and Eddie show really late in the piece and suddenly make it all about us, which would have been annoying. Why did they decide to do that? Were you guys just so funny in the team environment? Um, I have no idea. You have to ask them. Yeah. But, you know, Chris Lilly was part of the cast doing Mr. G. And, yeah. Um, Kate McLennan from the Catering Girls, was, she was one of the cast members. And, um, yeah, there was some – Andrew O'Keefe was in there as, a, as like a comedy performer. And, look, they were all more established than us. Again, we've just done – five half-hour episodes and probably been, had done no stand-up really and were just kind of mucking around at university. And so someone saw something in that chemistry that Hamish and I had but probably went around, well, definitely I say, went about it the wrong way to just suddenly make what was meant to be a group sketch show called, just suddenly called the Hamish and Andy Show. We, we came back from uh, filming a sketch into the office and it felt really a little bit prickly and um, got called to the executive producer's room and said, hey, just so you know, 
we're changing the name of the show. Okay, what are you going to call it? It was called Fast Food. And we're like, oh, they're going to call it Hamish and Andy's Fast Food. I'm going to add your name to it. I'm like, right. Have you asked the others? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they're all cool with it. We're like, you sure? Because, you know, we don't, we don't really need that. It's, no, no. So the others weren't really fine with it. And that's, and that's fine. That's, that's okay. I, I always, you know, at the time I was a bit miffed as to why our fellow castmates weren't really being that helpful. So it's not a great environment. But I totally get why they would be, uh, you know, just they signed up for something completely different and now they're an ensemble cast for two guys that are 21 um, who basically sit in their own little office and write their own stuff and <laughs> don't really, yeah, and get to do what they want. Um, so, yeah, but I wouldn't say it was a lot. I mean, it was. There was some hard moments there, but it's, it's a good one to remind me of. But I kind of liked the whole experience. I liked those challenges. I feel like we learned so much. We learned about communication, particularly performance. Um, every thing that didn't go particularly well or was hard and, and, uh, and, and tough conversations and, and sometimes combative and confrontational, it was just a great thing to, to have at 21 years old, 22. Um, we went on to do another show after that called The Friday Show, which is a pilot. Steve Weisard worked on it with us. Um, Ted Emery, who's the great director of Full Frontal and Fast Forward and stuff. Um, and they didn't, they didn't commission it, Channel 7, which was, again, I don't even remember being that sad about it. Maybe I was, but we didn't really work that hard on it because we were scared and we were pretty, you know, probably pretty arrogant because we were like, everything we're doing is funny. Every, and, but we realised, no, you have to work harder. We've since talked about it and kind of didn't work hard because I was scared. And it was easier to go, it'll be right, it'll be right. Just don't worry about it. We're funny enough, it'll be right. And then realised it's not going to be right. And if either of us have any issue with what we're about to achieve or we're trying to achieve, best straight away to go, hey, I'm not really seeing this. How could it improve? And then that created a much better dynamic for everything we did with the four guys, Tim Ryan and Hamish and I. So again, those lows, you learn a lot more from the things that don't work, I reckon, than from the things you do. So it was all good stuff to kind of whack in our satchel and, and take to the next project. That time we had the beer at um, the Posty mm. with the same, I remember we were sitting at those tables that are joined to the wall yep. outside and your phone slipped out of your pocket onto the ground behind you and there are a couple of girls at the table behind us because you kind of like stuck in your yes, seat yeah, at those really tables tight, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i remember you turned around and said sorry would you mind just passing me my phone i can't get it and i was watching them watching you and they were looking at each other like that's andy lee like <laughs> oh my god do you remember when you first started getting recognized in public um not overly but i'm with the radio show it was kind of gathering momentum and we went to, we used to have station like parties for the show, like basically encouraging people to listen, listen to the Hamish and Andy show for your way to win to this party, right? There was a bit, always an event going on. And when we first did them, we would literally come into the room with 50 other people and just drink with them and almost introduce who we are and have fun. They were really great. 
mainly because people would just listen throughout the day and just want to go to a party. They didn't really care about the show. And then there was one in um, South Australia, which is funny because the name was – it was called the VI Pod Party. It was when pod, pod, iPods had just come out. <laughs> okay. And it was like the VI Pod Party, we're going to play all the music off an iPod. And you're like, whoa, um, terrible idea. But they, uh, the station manager at the time had uh, like I think had a share in this – nightclub or this place and he was trying to get the vi pod parties going on a thursday night or something so anyway it was there was always an angle being run for these things so Hamer and i went across there we walked to the room and everyone was just really excited to see us and like oh that's a bit strange and we went up spoke to everybody and the mc said well if anyone wants photo you can line up over here and the whole room went and started lining up i'm like oh we normally come to these things and just no one really asks us for anything, but we just drink and have fun with people. I remember going, ah, okay, this, this, is, this dynamic's really changed. We didn't like it at first because we're like, oh, no, no, we, we don't really want to be famous. This is not the reason we do it at all. It's just a byproduct of what you do. And that night we sat there kind of for an hour as people lined up and got their photo and then they all kind of went off and we just kind of sat next to this... Um, station logo and took photos and like ah this is changed so that was the time where I realized okay people do know what we're doing um but it also meant that we changed the type of parties that we did because we're like we're not going to do that again and try to often go smaller and or have an idea where everyone's coming like one of my favorite ones was Oprah Winfrey was out in Australia and she was doing a night with Oprah and we, st- we, we, we did a night near Oprah and we booked the venue next to <laughs> and we charged tickets. <laughs> and, um, and, and like very cheap. But the whole joke was like, because everyone's like, Oprah Winfrey's sold out. So it's like, yeah, well, Oprah, a night near Oprah's also sold out. And we all came together to just, you had to dress in a power suit like Oprah from any era. And people all came... And it was just a really fun, funny night of everybody. And we had different Oprah-based things that, that were very loose things because neither of us really know much about Oprah, to be honest. But, um, yeah, inventing um, kind of events where from the get-go people are on the in and you've got a connection and it's not just about rocking up to do a meet and greet. So 2006 was the breakout year? Yeah. Real stories? That was 2004. 2004. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, maybe actually 2005 okay. would have been. 2005, we filmed it. And yeah, you're probably right. It probably went to air. Went to air 2006. 2006. Yeah. Remember that being my favorite show on TV back then? I was at school. Yeah. And I found you, Ryan and Hamish, hilarious. Yeah. I was re-watching some of the skits the other day. Do they stand the, up um, still? Yeah. The water wastage. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like the kind of yes. affable, dorky yep. environment minister yes. in New Zealand. <laughs> so good. And then the guy who get and you play a similar kind of character, the guy who gets grounded for life. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I really love that show. Um, I, I, it was just so much fun to make. And I think it's some of the funniest stuff we've ever done. Um, but again, it comes back to that naivety of just like, just happy to try anything. Yeah. You know, if no one knew who we were, you know, we're playing, 
heaps of characters per show. We're not amazing character actors, but it's, it's good enough to kind of take on these roles. We're running out of different wigs, so we started wearing wigs backwards. <laughs> you know, and it's, but the writing and the ideas, again, when you talk about the construct, we'd, like, we'd find a, a place to play and then just explore all that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, um, really loved that show and, and it didn't find a huge audience, but people that loved it really, really loved it. Yeah. yeah. And so that might have aired 2006, maybe 2005. Yeah, and I think so, yeah. The big thing that happened in 2006 is the Drive Time radio show. Yeah. Fox. Yep. How did Pants Off Fridays begin? The, yeah, we... We were arguing with the boss at the time, program director, to... They didn't want us to even be on Fridays. So you're just going to do Monday to Thursday? Monday to Thursday. And they wanted to have a dance party Fridays to get everybody jazzed for the week and have, like, some DJ playing music on a Friday. And we're like, well, well, I can't believe we can't be on for the whole week. I don't want to give anyone a chance to listen to another show on a Friday and perhaps fall in love with them. So we argued for a while. And the boss ended up saying, oh... Look, to be honest, we can't afford you, which is a big lie because they really could and we're getting paid nothing. And so we said, oh, okay, we'll do it for free. We'll just, we'll just do it for free if that's the problem. And then he kind of – I wasn't a play. We were just like, okay, if that's the problem, we'll do it free. In retrospect, I realised that that's a lie from him. But he also, because he lied, couldn't really go back on it because <laughs> we said we'd do it for free. So um, he said, okay – you can do it, but you have to have some theme. And we're like, great. And we didn't think about it at all until the Friday. And he came in and said, what's the theme? And Hamish just said, oh, it's Pants Off Friday. And he's like, oh, yeah, what's that about? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's just the easiest way to relax heading into the weekend. We just do the show with our pants off. He's like, oh, love it, guys, love it. <laughs> and Hamish turned to me and said, oh, I guess we're doing the show with our pants off today. And it turned out to be like one of the most recalled things that um, – that we had on the show. Yeah, people really like And it did have a different energy. Like it just yeah. it started a Friday with just silliness, which is really fun. Did, yeah, so did you find that changed your mental space? Yeah. You didn't have pants? Yeah. Yeah. It was just stupid. And then guests would come in and look at us and go, my God, these guys aren't. Now, I don't think in this day and age, I'm not sure how appropriate it is with Female guests like Natalie Battingquake coming in to promote the Rogue Traegers and two guys there in their underwear kind of probably has the wrong connotations, but it didn't for us at the time. It was just like silliness and kind of at home lounge room type vibe is what we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a moment when you realised that the show was something special, that it would become a really significant career? Nah. I mean, I've always been proud of the show, but... Only more in retrospect do you look back and go, oh, wow, that was, people really liked that. Mm. But at the time, it didn't feel like, you know, I was wondering that last night with watching Ed Sheeran and Rod Laver. Like, there was that period where Ed Sheeran, well, he broke the record for the amount of tickets sold in Australia. He, he, I think he sold a quarter of a million tickets in Melbourne alone for his tour, um, which I don't think will happen again for him. Not to slide on Ed, but you are in a moment in time where you just every, your your style and what you're doing is yep. is a thing and on the way home last night I said to Becca I, I felt the same when I look back at the radio show now it's like didn't realize thought it was normal this is how it rolls but 
Yeah. This is what happens when you start a radio show. This is what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what happens when you start a radio show. So, which is nice. It's nice to be there and feeling that. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it's, it, it didn't really dawn on us until well later that, yeah, that, that was, that was pretty big. And you guys started the podcast in the same year, 2006. Yeah. And it was just a syndication of the radio yeah. show. That's incredible. So I, the first podcast I ever listened to mm. was you guys, but that wasn't until 2014. Mm. I was road tripping back across Australia with two mates, yep. Kip and Flemo. Shout out to the boys. <laughs> and um, they put you guys on and I, I didn't really get... I mean, it, it was around the time where everyone was sort of like, oh, you should listen to Serial and yep. talking about Serial. And, yep. But I didn't really get what podcasts were and I thought, oh, this is cool. And then maybe a year later I'd listened to Tim Ferriss or something yeah. and then finally got on the serial bandwagon and then yep. started to understand what podcasts w- were about. But that was like almost 10 years <laughs> after you guys had started. So yeah. do, do you have any memories of, of your, your, uh, your earliest thoughts on podcasting yeah. as a medium? Just wanted, we loved Ricky Gervais. He had to show out really early. We were trying to get that to listen to, um, even the pods from XFM. He was on XFM with Carl and Stephen. And so we just heard that they were putting up. I was like, why can't we have ours up? And Ricky Gervais was number one in the iTunes charts because he's Ricky Gervais. And, but also because nothing else was really around. So we had to tell the, the, the radio station, hey, we'd like to put the podcast. Oh, no, we're not really doing that. And they're like, no, no, we really, we're really passionate about it. And so they eventually went, okay, you just kind of sort it out yourselves. So we did. Um, and again, it's kind of like, being Red Bull, that first mover advantage, because we were one of the only things on, we had always been the top 10. <laughs> and so anyone that's discovering podcasts would then, it's the same with like Instagram followers. When the platform came out, people are getting a lot much harder to curate an audience now when people are being more discerning. But if you're starting to log on to Instagram first, I'm like, oh, who do I follow? Oh, that person's got a lot of followers. That person's got a lot. So it perpetuates itself. Um, and that's what happened with our pod. It just kind of, uh, it was it was funny. I was listening back to the pod just to see how it sounded and make sure it's all right and so on. And, and suddenly heard an ad in it, and I was like, "It was for Boytown, for Mick Malloy's film Boytown with Glenn Robbins and Wayne Hope." And I said, "I went into the boss and said, what, what the hell are you doing? Why is there an ad?'" And he's like, "Oh yeah, we there's a lot of people listening to the podcast. Like, yeah, but you've got no right to put an ad in it." It's like, "Oh well, can we?" I was like, "No." <laughs> What, what, you know, when, when do you start doing this? Oh, we started doing this a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so I was pretty angry with them, but obviously it turned into a medium in its own. Um, and then Haim and I felt like, um, you know, we love radio so much and it's awesome that we can continue the podcast, have the flexibility in life, but still scratch that itch. Mm. I originally fell in love with the medium because you can do something while you're listening. Yeah. So it's like it, it gives you a lot of time back. So you cook or commute or go to the gym or yep. run or whatever, but you can still be learning or being entertained while that's happening. Yep. That, that was the original reason, but I kind of go in and out of listening now mm. just because I don't have a lot of time. And yeah. I found someone said that the other day, what podcast are you listening to? I was like, ah, oh. I mean, more recently I've, I listened to last week, uh, the uh, the sure thing. Have you heard of that one? No. About two kind of mid twenty year old guys from Melbourne who all got caught um, 
with the biggest insiding trading scheme or scam of all time in Australia. Only recently. Um, and I liked listening to that one because I was like, Hamer and I love a loophole. We love risk. I'm not suggesting that we try an insider trading scam. <laughs> but I was listening to these two guys and going, shit, that's not far from something I think I'd try. Not that my conscience would kick in too quickly because I was awful that, like that. I just, uh, when I ever did anything wrong when I was little, I used to um, go and tell dad by 10 p.m. because I couldn't <laughs> sleep. But um, yeah, just, just listening back to these guys and them talking about it and then realizing how big a mistake they'd made that had gone completely out of control for them was pretty fascinating. So that's one that I've been pretty pumped about for recently. Have you and Haim ever had a similar sort of experience where you've you've taken a risk for the show and started to, to realise oh, we probably shouldn't have done this, we've gone too far? Just Certainly in terms of the, the personal danger to your own physical oh, yeah. health? Like watching back a lot of gap year and caravan trip, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't believe we did that. Um, Are there any that stand out? Uh, I mean, the hovercraft, we, we, we bought a secondhand hovercraft in New Zealand and, oh, sorry, homemade one, and then tried to take it out on Marlborough Sounds out on the water uh, and to deliver mail to this, you know, really remote guy. And, <laughs> the hovercraft is not meant to go on waves. You need flat surfaces for a hovercraft. And so it got pretty bad and it was a little bloody cold. We're having a laugh about it and trying to rev this, this, this engine to get this fan going because we'd, we'd crashed a couple of times and it, it, it wasn't going so well. But the fan exploded and went straight. I was sitting on the back like, like, a, you know, like a motorbike. I was sitting second back and a bit higher. And the fan came burst through the cage that was thing and went straight past my head and we're all just in shock because absolutely would have killed me wow. and it's like you know centimeters away and we're in shock and then i think i just turned to the camera and said were you rolling <laughs> <laughs> did you get it did they get it um, they got it nice. yeah it's pretty full-on to watch that back in the edit and you're like oh shit that was really dangerous um, but there's a number of those where you're like, oh. But that's what made the shows fun. And also what I loved about those travel shows is like genuinely feeling uncomfortable. There's so many f shows these days, it's like you're in faux discomfort. Um, and you see people kind of hamming it up, but uh, it was good to feel the real emotions on all those trips. And you can only do that by kind of pressing those boundaries. So that was important. Yeah. That's one thing I've always liked about you guys is that the stunts are, are real. Yeah. And they are pretty, many of them are pretty edgy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not yeah. least of all the board ants, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's a famous example. Well, people go, oh, like I remember someone in the States describing, so, oh, these guys are like jackass. And I was like, really? I didn't, I didn't feel like anything like jackass. I really didn't. Like, yeah, they sort of go out of their way to hurt themselves. Yeah. They, hospitalize themselves. Exactly. <laughs> their thing is about, you know they're going to get hurt. Yeah where the object for us was to never get hurt. In fact, it was to avoid getting hurt. And on the most part, we did. So it was great. But I found that curious that someone's going, oh, yeah, these guys like jackass in Australia. I was like, oh, I really don't feel that. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I liked jackass. 
but never the ones where they're just like, okay, punch me in the dick. I was like, when it was a funny idea, that was when I was like, oh, that's really cool. Mm. Um, uh, and if someone got hurt or slipped over during it, that's cool as well. Yeah. Yeah, they're really elaborate ideas were quite funny yeah and you sort of you can't take your eyes off the screen yeah in 2010 end of 2010 you guys had u2 crash yeah one of your um concerts on your tour and sometime after that sam kavanagh executive producer got in touch with fran u2's head of pr who apparently was just like one of the most impressive people yep and got her to do some workshops with the team about branding and yeah career and building an audience were you at any of those workshops do you remember was at one yeah um and we had the interesting discussion in that meeting about having our own personal twitter accounts i think right like because Haim and i was joint accounts for everything for a very 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 long time yeah including instagram and then the discussion was, well, should we have our own? We're like, you know, and I, to be honest, I was like, nah, I think we should be, the, 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 you know, we want to focus people back in the show and so on. Um, but it, it, we totally needed our own. You needed your own identity. You needed, and the fact that it's so, um, uh, you know, that's where people connect with their, their, their favourite people now. It's like so personal the way social media works. And, you know, often the, 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 group things or the show ones don't do nearly as well because they're they're more a you know polished little bit of content that's coming up opposed to you know real life and and behind the scenes which is what people yearn for on social media but it did take us a while to kind of work through that and work that out um so i think that came from one of those discussions interesting yeah yeah do you have any tips for growing a podcast audience um, anything kind of maybe a bit different that you wouldn't find in those generic blogs yeah on Google I mean the I, I, look getting people on that have a following which they say on those blogs anyway <laughs> is a great way to do it but that is that is you know what I find it's really hard at the moment like podcasts there's so many of them mm. um, it's a long tail it is a long tail. I think there was a stat, Hamish, was telling me there was 760,000 podcasts released in the US maybe last year, the year before. And the median listenership was 112 listens. Wow. So, yeah. That's a lot of people just grinding it out in silence. <laughs> Isn't it? 300, yeah, there would be 300,000 yeah. podcasts with under 100 listeners. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is a very static, yeah, there's a lot of static in the world. Yeah. Um, so, if I was going from scratch, uh, one thing is people that, if you reach, I reckon reach out to your favorite pods. Yeah. And try and get a cross promote. And that's only going to happen when you reach out to, um, you know, the, the the people that connect with you and and you love, but that's often listening to a pod and I hear someone recommend something. I think that's the quickest way yeah. to do it. Um, it's podcasts are so word of mouth. 
I can't. I haven't really seen them be that effective with a big marketing billboard saying, "Listen to this podcast." Yet, it, unless it's a huge star that you, you know, Barack Obama's doing this. You're like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but it's really difficult, isn't it? Mm. Um, On that, one of the early things I realised, like my light bulb moment, was that <clears throat> the unity economics of podcasting dictate that your marketing strategy essentially has to be viral growth. Yep, but. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not someone who naturally likes talking about that whole marketing aspect. Mm. I hate that phrase like content is king. Yep. <laughs> no, content is everything. Yep. Like um, we're not doing it to be famous. Mm. Like fame is just so overrated. Mm. We're doing it because we're interested in people. Yep. We want to share conversations with everyone that we think are important. Yep. Like at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. Yeah. And it's not some like hack for growing an audience. Yes. Like content isn't king. Content is everything. Yep. Um, I agree. But yeah, so I interrupted your, your podcast tips. Any others that you would add? No, that's a, like we, we had similar things at that point. It, it's, not, it's not really a point of difference now, but when we started and we just, just did the pod three and a half years ago, we were like, we know how this can sound really slick. Um, so that was something for us to make a point of difference. So like you're saying, quality. Sake. And then one thing we discussed, which was, again, when you're talking about just nailing exactly what your product is and why it's different, is like we wanted to create a momentum because most podcasts are long form. Mm-hmm. And we were is like, that true? Yeah. Wow. You know, like at a particular time, people sitting down interviewing yeah. and chatting, like yeah, conversationally. Yeah. yeah. We decided to invent the bell in our <laughs> podcast, which is essentially like, I'll hit a bell, which means that topic's over. And that creates momentum because yep. no topic really goes for longer than 10 minutes. Um, and then you know that, so you tighten up your top. So it, it's, it's, it, it appears like the shows are more jam-packed full. Mm. Um, and that's not a knock on long form because, you know, we're doing it right now and it's really great, great. But that was one point of difference we decided on our, for yeah. our product and offering to go, okay, what's everyone else doing? Maybe we can create momentum, make them feel more full, get to more topics in that, that yeah. regard. Yeah. Through the institution of the bell. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we knew that, you know, we'd come from radio, ad breaks and songs is your bell. Yeah. And you tend to just have five minutes that topic's done move on to the next one and then your show can feel full that way um and so we kind of needed that construct still to kind of continue that those theories so recently i had paul collier on the podcast who's a an oxford economist um has a couple of great books the future of capitalism and greed is dead Mm. and he's he was talking about his favorite study in social science was by a, a few kiwi researchers and they asked, they surveyed people and asked them what their three biggest regrets were in oh, life. Wow. Yeah. And it was just an interesting study because it shows what really matters to humans. Yeah. They weren't, oh, I wish I'd invested in Amazon like 20 years ago. Or yeah. if only I hadn't flunked that interview with Goldman Sachs. But they were all about breaches of obligations or rules to other people. Interesting. Um, you know, I, I yeah. let that friend down. I wish I'd spoken to my parents more yep. so goes to the point that we're sort of morally load-bearing creatures we're yeah. not like 
selfish and individualistic. That's interesting. We're, we're like both. Yes. But I was wondering if you have any like top regrets. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've mentioned it before actually in print, but my sister rang and said, don't say that again <laughs> because you didn't. But I wasn't particularly good, I didn't think, to my sister when my mum was really sick. Um, my sister was 13, kind of becoming a woman, lost the only other lady or woman in, in the household. And I, because dad was out so often the hospital, I kind of took on like house in order type roles. You were 14? I was 15. 15. And so, yeah, I just remember not really being all that considerate. Um, and, uh, you know, pounding her to do chores or get that done or lunch and stuff. And so that was, that was kind of a regret for me to go, okay, that would have, could have been, you know, everyone's deal. Like, I, you know, it's, it's when people, you know, you know, I've told, when I said that to my dad, he's like, hey, we're all dealing with something really, really odd and weird and sad and uh, et cetera. So like you can forgive yourself for that. It's like, oh yeah, it's not like I'm, going to lose sleep sleep over it I'm 15 years old but definitely uh something I look back at and go okay that I wish I hadn't um I'd just given her a bit more consideration um so that one kind of comes to mind but um as I kind of said to you I've got a uh a pretty strong conscience that's instilled from my parents so hasn't been too many occasions where I've got the guts to do the wrong thing, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and when it comes to those things, um, generally I find myself in deep thought before making those decisions. I find that pe with people that have regrets, it's generally they're caught up in a moment and they make quick decisions that snowball mm. rather than sit back and calculate to, to let someone down. Um, and if they have done that, that's, um, yeah, sociopathic type yeah, approach. Yeah, exactly. It's like that concept of the banality of evil. Yeah. Like people's goals are just misaligned. Yeah. No one's, you know, maybe like 2% of the population are actual sociopaths. Yes. But most people, when they make those sort of mistakes, they're not going out of their way to hurt others. Mm. They're just optimizing for their own yeah. instant gratification. Yep. And, I, and like, I'm also super lucky with how things went in life. Like, I'm super grateful, and, but I'm really aware that, like we mentioned earlier, Haim and I just kind of started and, and it went well pretty quickly and, and then we could ride that. And so um, a lot of poor decisions for people come in times of desperation. And, um, you know, I'm... I feel really fortunate to have been able to avoid um, that element of, of desperation, um, for whether it's for financial reasons, for that, all those things, or even trying to work your way up to different jobs, roles and stuff. There are times where you can step on someone to get where you need to go. Um, and thankfully, I haven't been presented really with any of those where I've needed to. So I haven't, my conscience hasn't probably been tested fully in that regard, um, 
so yeah, I, I didn't want to come across like I'm holier now. I just don't think it's been tested um, at, at this stage. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. When are you at your happiest? Mixture. I mean, probably doing pod with Haim and like, I mean, I love it so much. It's good fun. But, you know, hanging out with my family, I'm going, taking my dad to the footy tonight, Carlton Collingwood. If Carlton win, I'll probably be at my happiest. (laughs) 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 Playing golf. It really is a mix for me. Um, I couldn't just be served one thing that I love for the rest of my life. It's, it's, it's a happiness is a pie and my pie of happiness has got, um, yeah, family would take a big chunk. Um, sport, watching or, or playing takes a good chunk. Worth, work, I get a lot of self-worth out of work. Um, so I kind of feel like I, I need, um, yeah, all the elements to, 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 for, for me to be, be happy. And, and that's why when one of them finishes or you know, moves out, I, you know, even with, if, you, if you break up, you know, and people say to you, remember after I had a pretty public breakup back in the day, um, people like, you know, are you sad? You're like, yeah, I am, but on my pie of happiness, um, my partner um, takes up a slice of that, mm. but it's, it's it being removed. There's still a lot. There's still a lot there. That's a really important point. And I think the way I think about that is like creating an ecosystem of positive emotions. It's like I've got my mates, I've got partner, I've got family, you've got your work, your side projects, like your health, your hobbies, all these different things which are hopefully moving in a positive direction and maybe at some point some of them are failing or regressing but the others can kind of prop you up. Yes, my mate, one of my mates works in HR and has for a while and kind of moved up. Um, but he said that when someone's underperforming, it's, it's like there's kind of three, three things like friends, family, work. He said they're, they're pretty much the three pillars. And he goes, no one ever has three going at once really. Yeah. Um, everyone's kind of either family gripe going on, friendship problem. Or a work problem. It's like it, there's generally one. He goes, and it's okay to have one, but we find with the employees that struggle, it's when two are falling away. He said that the, he said he always finds that interesting. It's like as soon as someone is, yeah, miss, like is is down about two, it's when they get pretty depressed and it's pretty hard for those three pillars. Mm-hmm. So, I think people, I think particularly friends and family, underestimate how they can prop someone up when t- times are tough at work, and work places. I think. Um, also underestimate how much they can be a great escape for someone that's having a tough time at home. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point because we don't often think of work as an escape. No, no, but it's it's you know I, I think that I, I certainly in some of my tougher emotional times outside of work have relied on work to go in, pick me up, have fun. And we've worked with a lot of people that have um, you know depression and, and mental health issues. And have offered them the opportunity to not come in, and they're like, "No, this is all only where I want to be." Mm-hmm. And am I bringing the vibe down? It's like, "No, no, no. You don't even have to chat. You can just sit and take it in. If this is where you want to be, we'll acknowledge it to the whole group. Just if you're comfortable with that. But just no one's going to be a downer if you if you think this is the place you want to be. 
come in and, and we'll have a great time. And, uh, but just know we'll be all laughing. We're not going to kind of treat you too differently. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a good, good kind of policy. Final question. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by partnerships. Yep. Why they work, why they don't work. And the idea of two brilliant people coming together and creating something that's greater than the sum of their parts. Yep. Watson and Crick, Lennon and McCartney, yep. Kahneman and Tversky, yep. Hamish and Andy. <laughs> what have been the essential ingredients to both the moment-to-moment chemistry you have with Haim, mm. but then also the partnership that you've sustained for two decades now? I think there's a pretty simple answer to this. Um, and uh, we, have one, we have one overarching rule, which we established pretty early on. And it probably t- speaks to respect for each other and what each other does. But if either of us don't want to do it, we're not doing it. There's no why, you don't have to explain it. And if you go in with that mindset, it's been so easy. Because I was like, hey, we should do this. No, nah, I don't really want to. He's like, all right. You can't build up resentment if you've both played by that rule, that you need two keys to turn. Because a lot of partners and in chatting with different uh, duos and in sporting world, and I won't name names, but, you know, um, you know it might be... Uh, doubles tennis or uh, um, you know, s- sporting teams and volleyball and so on, the, uh, even in cricket, but obviously a large group, it's like it, the problems come when goals aren't aligned and resentment builds because you're like, mm. he's not putting in or they're not, why won't they want to do this? This is such a good opportunity, but he's holding me back, those type of things. And Haim and I had the same thing for ideas. It's like... I come to sometimes, or Hayne might come with what he thinks is the best idea. And if I don't get it, I'll try to. I always try to get it. But if I don't, and, and vice versa, if he doesn't, I'm like, all right, we'll think of another one. It's too, it, it, it's too fragile, the vibe, to, you know, have a quarrel over those type of things. And similarly with work, if, if one of us doesn't want to take that opportunity... Um, whatever it might be, TV show, new radio show, overseas opportunities that we've been offered, um, endorsement deals, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you're allowed to just say no and you don't have to explain. And the other person just goes, okay, that's cool. Well, we'll find the right one where we're both pumped to do it. Um, so you skip past any of that resentment and even any of those tough conversations when that's the status quo. You don't start pitching each other on the ideas? It do. Like, I'll go, hey, this one might be really important to me. Um, can you have another look at it? Um, and, and in those moments, and, and vice versa, I'll go, oh, shit, yeah, actually, he really wants to do this. So, yeah, we can do it. Like, it's not, it's not that big a deal for me, of course. But you don't play that card. I mean, don't think I've played the card for years or either at home. Like, because you know, and you don't want to put emotional pressure on someone else because um, it's unfair so you know you have the discussion um, if it's a no you might leave it a few weeks and see how important it is to you still and 
yeah, ring up and go, hey, I'm still thinking about it. What if it was this or that? And if it's still no, that's all right. That, that's, 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 I think, again, the importance of the duo is like, why would I ever want to go into something where he didn't want to do it or vice versa? Um, it's, and that's the same with ideas. It's like, I'm, I've got to perform it with, with Haim. It's only going to be good if we're both pumped to do it. And so, yeah, just leave it, find something else. Andy Lee, thanks so much for joining me. Cheers, buddy. Good to see you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Two things before you go. One, if you want to read the transcript or the show notes for this episode, you'll find them on my website, thejspod.com. Number two, please subscribe to the show. It means that you won't miss new episodes like this one, and it also makes it easier for other people to find us, and I would appreciate your help. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our dehydrated video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.